Uh, <laughs> I hate this part. Uh, I always think I have to be funny and catchy when I when I start, and I always fuck that up. I was gonna make a shitty joke. I missed my episode last week, and I I'm, I was gonna make a shitty joke about the I couldn't afford the internet, so we were unable to upload the video. I don't know if that's funny or not. What is up, everybody? I am Jason Trost, the host of Business of Betting Podcast. I am joined today with Scott. Uh, he's an NBA veteran. Um, I'm really excited to have him on the guest. Uh, one of the big things I want to do with this podcast is peel the curtain back. NBA very, very amazingly took a really strong view on sports betting. Uh, preparing for this podcast, I went back and looked at the archives. Adam Silver is the commissioner of the NBA wrote a very, very famous, at least in the industry, famous op-ed in 2014, which blew me away that it was that long ago, where basically he was calling for the federal uh, legalization of sports betting. And you know, even rereading the article seven years ago, I was uh, impressed on how prescient it was and how well-written it was and how still a lot of the ideas in that, that op-ed uh, made sense. And, and as an operator in the industry, I saw that and I thought, wow, this is really great. So I'm really excited to have Scott in the podcast. I want to talk about the NBA's relationship with sports betting, um, how it's evolved since it's gone legal and uh, get into the weeds. So Scott, thank you very much for joining the podcast. You got it, Jason. Happy to be here. So why don't we kick off? Um, why don't we kick off? You're from New Jersey, but why don't we, why don't we get a little bit into the background? Well, first of all, what's your, what's your title at the NBA? Let's start with that. My title is SVP, Head of Gaming and New Business Ventures. Okay, perfect. So, and you've been there since 2011, which is quite a lot. You know, these days people change jobs every two, three years. So it's amazing that you've been in, in one place for so long. Why don't you talk about how you, you got into the NBA? Because I, I know that so many people um, would love to work for a professional sports, sports league. So I imagine a lot of listeners would be curious about that journey. I guess you wouldn't believe it was my killer perimeter jumper that got me into the NBA. So, uh, um, so yeah, I, I look, I, growing up, like so many uh, young boys in America, I, I dreamed of working in sports. Um, I was a sports fanatic growing up, and it was always where I wanted to, to end my career. In, in college, I got some advice that I still believe was great advice, and I still give to young people today, which is that it's it's really tough to get into the sports industry directly out of college. And you're sort of in a, in a better position if you go into um, a specific industry, you gain a skill set, you go through a proper training program, and then you have an opportunity to come over the NBA with a, a discernible skill set that you can bring to the league office. And so uh, coming out of college, I started my career at Goldman Sachs. Um, I was in the investment research group there where I covered retail stocks. It gave me a really well-rounded skill set. I learned how to build financial models. Um, I learned how to write, which which I think is a really underrated skill, which is to understand how to distill a bunch of information down to a cohesive set of talking points. Here are the main things you know. This is the result of those points. Here's a recommendation. And that's sort of writing a business email. So I thought that was a really valuable skill set. You know, learned how markets worked, how to put together a work product, um, and really got that skill set that I always uh, was told that I needed to have before coming into an organization like the NBA. And then in the fall of 2011, the NBA actually reached out to me um, and said, hey, we have this job opportunity we, we'd love you to apply for. Um, I started there in November of 2011. Uh, the, my first job was in the international finance group, 
um, where I did financial planning and analysis, you know, building budgets and doing revenue forecasting. Can't say that was the most exciting part of my career here, but helped me learn the NBA business. Then I moved over to the strategy team in the summer of 2013. And I was on that team for five years. And it was on that team where um, I think it, I, I remember it pretty well. It was the winter of 2014. It was the beginning of 2014. And Daily Fantasy had emerged in, in, into the US uh, ecosystem. And it was becoming too big for us to ignore. And the head of my group at the time, Andy Lustgarden, said, somebody needs to look at this industry. We have to figure out what we would do. I literally raised my hand into the air as a big fantasy player. You know, in, in my high school years, I was in fantasy basketball leagues, baseball leagues, football leagues, loved fantasy sports. I thought it was a fascinating industry. Um, and so met the folks at DraftKings and FanDuel and some of the other players that were around back then, which ultimately culminated with us doing a partnership with FanDuel where we took an equity stake in the company. Um, so that was in November of 2014, we did that deal. And, you know, by virtue of that work, I sort of became the NBA's in-house expert on predictive gaming. And it was actually a coincidence, but that two days after we announced that partnership with FanDuel is when uh, Adam Silver released the op-ed uh, on our sports betting position. And so they kind of said to me, all right, now that we have this position, we need to start studying this industry. And prepare for a day when sports betting might be legal. Um, and so I, I sort of, out of the strategy group, started you know, attending conferences, building relationships with industry stakeholders, reading reports, traveling overseas to markets where sports betting was legal, learning the industry to prepare for a day when sports betting might be legal, and became the NBA's sort of in-house expert uh, on the topic. And then when the Supreme Court agreed to hear the New Jersey case, and we started to see the writing on the wall that this was actually going to happen, um, I decided that was the time the league probably needed to do a little bit more and formalize this initiative. I wrote a 50-page business plan saying this is what the NBA should do in the category. This is how, this is how we should build the infrastructure for it. And we created a group um, to look after initially the fantasy sports category and then the sports betting category when PASPA was actually repealed. So that's sort of been my journey at the NBA and how I was put in the position of leading this effort at the league office. That's, that's quite the journey. You skipped over a crazy detail where you grew up wanting to work for a league and then they reached out to you for a job. That sounds like, was the universe aligned or did you put feelers out there that said, please contact me, uh, sports leagues? Yeah, no, it's a great point. I, I had I had done nothing, and they reached out to me, and it did feel it did feel somewhat serendipitous. Um, when I, you know, at the time, I actually wasn't looking to leave yet. I, I liked Goldman. I was doing well there. I enjoyed the work I was doing, and I wasn't looking to leave. But when it sort of fell into my lap, it felt like it was meant to be, and and a sign, if you will. And so it was too good to ignore. Ignore. So yeah, it it, it did just fall into my lap. Okay. All right. Well, take that, college kids. Uh, just sit around and wait for um, fortune to come your way. Awesome. So you probably have had one of the most like interesting viewpoints in the in the evolution of this, from you know nothing going on in America to pushing for the change to you know having a, a front row seat, so to speak, in this industry. Going back to that fifty page paper, what was the main thesis of that? Like back back in the day before when there was a, a white piece of white piece of paper what what was your hope and desire for the way the industry should should evolve well i guess let me start with sort of 
the league's position on sports betting and how it evolved. And then I can kind of take that to where I took that and in, in, in enacting what I thought the league's approach should be. Um, you know, we were proponents of PASPA when it passed in 1992, right? I mean, the league does believe that sports betting poses risks to its game. You know, when, when people bet on sports, that does create an integrity risk for the NBA. And in 1992, we felt the best way to protect our games was to pass a federal prohibition that prevented states from legalizing sports betting, of course, other than Las Vegas and Delaware um, that were grandfathered in. You know, from 1992 to 2014, uh, this little thing called the internet came along and then the smartphone came along. And what happened is it became so easy to bet on sports illegally. You know, we went beyond just having a bookie. It went, you could just go on this offshore website or a friend in town oversaw a website and you just go on the website and then you make payments. And, and so the, the, off, the offshore underground industry became so substantial. And you know, we saw estimates from the AGA that up to $400 billion was being bet illegally on sports in the United States. That number was probably pretty high, but, but anyway, that, that, that was their estimate as, of how high it could be. And that was when the league and, and Adam in particular said, oh, this doesn't make any sense. You know, This law is just serving to push all the activity into the underground where it's unregulated, unmonitored, and we're actually in a better position to protect the integrity of our competitions in a regulated market where there's transparency and where we can see what's happening and we have access to information than if it's happening onshore. So it, if people are going to bet anyway, we, they might as well be betting legally. And so that, that was what eventually led to uh, us to change our position to and for Adam to write that op-ed. Um, you know, we didn't agree with what New Jersey was doing because New Jersey was sort of trying to go around PASPA and do this partial repeal of laws. And we thought if sports betting was going to be legal, it should be fully regulated. It should be clear. And what we actually asked for was Congress to pass a new law that legalized sports betting on a federal basis. And I'm sure we'll get into that later because we, we were worried even back then that a state-by-state -state approach was going to cause a hodgepodge of regulations that were going to make it really cumbersome to operate. And I think Funny that. that is leading to a lot of challenges that you're seeing in the marketplace today that I, that I anticipate we'll talk about. And so what we wanted was a comprehensive federal approach that legalized sports betting. States would still be able to opt into that, um, but, but, but to legalize it where you'd have sort of a central body federal regulation um, to add that transparency. So that was sort of how we got from supporting PASPA and opposing New Jersey to saying, hey, we want sports betting to be legal in the United States, but under a federal regulation where there's consistent, clear regulation. Um, and in that op-ed, you know, if you read, go back and read it, you know, no one has ever suggested anything other than we know that sports betting leads to fan engagement. When, when people bet on sports, they watch more games, they're more interested in our league. And we know there is a benefit that comes from sports betting that there's fan engagement benefits, there's potential revenue benefits, and, and, and that was not lost on us as well. Um, so we, we kind of said at the heart of it, yes, we need to best protect the integrity of our competitions. And we think if betting is going to happen anyway, that it's better in, if it's legal and regulated. And then once it is, there's an opportunity to harness the fan engagement and generate a new revenue stream for the league. And that was sort of the underpinning of, of our position. And then 
in terms of your actual question um, of what you know, what did I put in that document, and, and what was our approach? I would summarize it as we can't treat sports betting like a sponsorship category. I think historically you would have looked at it as okay, we have a sponsorship group, and here's the insurance category, here's the autos category, here's the beverage category. We'll also have a betting sponsor, and I I, I was pretty consistent that that's not the right approach, and that sports betting is actually part of the fan experience for a lot of our, for a lot of our fans. And a lot, there's a, a good number of our fans that are using betting as the mechanism to engage with our contests. And so we have to treat it that way. And we have to think about it as a part of the fan experience and not just as a sponsorship category. And that sort of led to a lot of the decision-making of how we approached it and a non-exclusive framework where we're working with all the, the operators, creating betting focused telecasts, all, all things that we'll get into was to, to think about it as a fan engagement opportunity and not as a sp sponsorship category. Got it. Um, quick question. I mean, I'm all about uh, federal regulation. I, I think that's the, that's the way to go. Who knows if, if that'll happen? Like, did you take that to, like, if that's the league's position, how do you take that? Do you go find a champion? Do you hire lobbyists? Do you try to get more? How did, what happened? Why, why, don't, why do you think that was not successful? We're not experts in getting bills passed at, at the federal level or at the state level. You know, in, in terms of why that didn't happen, I think the gaming industry did not want to see federal regulation. They, they wanted this at the state level. Mm. And I just think it's historically gaming has always been regulated at the state level. You know, yeah. if you look at lotteries, casino gaming, all other forms of gaming have always been done at the state level. And so I think that was just sort of the default. Um, of course, over the past eight years, it's been difficult for our federal government to do much of anything. So I think that it, there was just a view that it was going to be difficult to pass legislation like this in the political environment. I'm not an expert at all on, on federal politics, so I don't want to venture any guesses beyond that. But I, I really think it ultimately came down to it would be difficult to get our federal government to pay attention to this with all the other things going on. And because gaming had historically been regulated at the state level, that's where the conversation happened. Yeah. I actually don't know the economics of the NBA that well. So can you, I'm sure that there's rich teams and poor teams, but what does a typical revenue split look like of an NBA? Are they making money from tickets, TV rights, uh, sponsorships, uh, merchandise? Like where's the money made in, in for a typical NBA team? Let me maybe explain how the NBA's economic system works and then we can you know talk about the different components. Sure. So basically... You know, revenue is generated and then it goes into a big pot. So revenue from media rights, sponsorship, ticketing at both the league and the team revenue at the, at the team level go into a big pot that we call basketball related income. Um, and that is all the revenue that is generated from NBA activities, less certain expenses. And then that revenue is shared with the players. Um, so we have an economic system where it's a direct calculation. Right? There's some nuance to it, but roughly 51% of all basketball-related income goes to fund player salaries. So all the revenue that is generated by the league goes into a big pot. A percentage of it then goes to the players, which then calculates the salary cap. And then we have a very complicated system with how the players are paid through the salary cap. And there's maxes and mid-level exceptions. And you know, NBA fans will, will, will know all those fancy things. But the, the revenue that is generated by the league funds basketball-related income. Basketball-related income funds the salary cap, and then the salary cap then goes out to the players. In terms of the split, media is our is our biggest revenue stream. So 
The biggest is our national television rights with, uh, with Disney, you know, through ESPN and ABC, and now Warner Brothers Discovery on, on TNT. That is, the, that is our biggest uh, revenue generator. We have other, we also have local media deals. So our teams have agreements with regional sports networks in each of their DMAs, their, their, um, their local territories. So here in New York, the Nets have a deal with Yes, uh, the Knicks have a deal with MSG. Um, you know, uh, 16 of our teams have a deal with a company called Sinclair that is on now what's called Valley Sports. Um, so that's about, you know, the second biggest category, you know, and then we have sponsorship and ticketing that are that are sort of ticketing's probably next and then sponsorship and that funds kind of the, the pool. So that's that's sort of the, the order. Media is the largest, then ticketing, then sponsorship. And I guess technically sports betting revenue would, would, would roll up into sponsorship. And so all of that revenue then funds player salaries. There's also some complicated dynamics between the teams. So teams generate local revenue in addition to, let me, let me take a step back here. So the league is like a pass-through entity, right? The, the league office represents the 30 NBA teams. And there is centrally created league revenue that is then split evenly across the teams. And then the teams have their own revenue pies, which is from local ticketing, from their local media deal with their RSNs, team sponsorship versus league sponsorship. And so they, they all have their own P&Ls, which is their team revenues and their team expenses, and then the central money that comes in from the league, you know, from national TV, national sponsorship, et cetera. And then there is a revenue sharing mechanism between the big market teams and the small market teams, since, you know, obviously teams in New York and LA can generate more revenue since those are bigger markets. So there is a very complicated revenue sharing plan where, you know, teams from New York and LA share revenue with teams from, you know, Memphis and New Orleans and Milwaukee. Um, and that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's the rough economic model of the league. And I'm obviously oversimplifying it, that the revenue sharing plan could take three podcasts to explain, but that's the overall. <laughs> no, that's super interesting. I didn't, I actually didn't know a lot of that. So if the, if the players are getting 51% of the pot, do, does each team have the same payroll? Each team has the same, there is a salary cap and then there is a, what's called a Ta a luxury tax threshold, and then there's a minimum. So there's a minimum amount of you can spend on salaries. There's a maximum amount of you can spend on salaries, and then there are some exceptions that allow you to exceed the maximum. And that's where it gets complicated. Like there's something called the Larry Bird exception, where you can re-sign your own player to exceed the salary cap. You can take, you can do a trade where you can take back only 80% of the salary that you sent out. So you can you can increase it that way. There's every year, there's what's called the mid-level exception where you can sign one new additional player and exceed the salary cap. Um, if a player is on a veteran's minimum, you can exceed the salary cap for that amount. So there are mechanisms to exceed the salary cap. So as a result, not every team ends up with the same payroll and some of them are on the lower end, some of them are on the higher end. But if you exceed the luxury tax, Pay threshold, you then pay a tax that sort of goes to the central payment for exceeding the salary cap. And so it becomes more and more and sort of exponentially more expensive as you exceed the salary cap and use those exceptions. Got it. Okay. So vis-a-vis -vis sports betting, how does how does the league think about sports betting in terms of the, the revenue diversity? Uh, you said it comes under sponsorship. The way you described it, it sounds like sponsorship is quite small compared to media rights. Is that is that a fair assessment? 
I think that's right. I mean, it's it, it's smaller for sure. It's mm. not orders of magnitude smaller, but it's it's certainly smaller. So, how, like, does the league foresee that sports betting revenue is going to be a bigger piece of the pie, or does the like what is the league's attitude towards sports betting? Um, just to give a little bit more context, <clears throat> uh, operators, including um, Smarkets, we have to pay a portion of our betting revenue to the league. From my perspective, it feels like a little bit of overreach from the league. Like I'm happy to pay for data, official data. That's kind of like the norm, and I think that's about the right way to do it. But to have a rev share with the league um, feels strong for me. What is the league's perspective on that? Taking it to, to first principles, right? You know, we have this competition that we fund, right? We 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 put on the competitions of the NBA. We we pay the players 51% of of, of the revenue that comes in, and the way we do that is companies that exploit our intellectual property that put on our games that sell t-shirts with our logos that create video games with nba ip they share a percentage of the revenue that they make with the league that's how we fund the league um and our perspective not just in sports betting but sort of across the board which is that if third-party businesses are going to generate revenue using the product that we create we should participate in that revenue so we're putting on these competitions. Sports betting operators are taking those competitions, offering bets on them, generating revenue using those competitions. We think it's inherently reasonable that we participate in those economics. Just again, just the same way that when there's an NBA t-shirt out there, we get a percentage of that from Nike. When NBA 2K sells a video game, we get a percentage of that. If third parties are going to use the competitions that we put on, um, we think it's appropriate for us to share in those economics. Uh, so, so that's kind of the first principle of, of, of why we feel that way is, again, just that you have these third party companies. They're using our competitions. They're generating millions of dollars of revenue. We think it's inherently reasonable for us to participate in those economics. Got it. So to ask a provocative follow-up question, you know, if I'm a journalist and I write about the Sixers uh, or I'm on the news and, and I do an article about the Sixers and then I'm selling ad next to that article, I'm pretty sure that the NBA doesn't participate in that revenue. Why is journalism or somebody that is writing or talking about the league making money off of talking about the league? Why, why do they get a pass and sports betting should pay? It's not as direct of a usage of our product, right? When you sell, when you have a newspaper, you're writing about everything, right? You're, you're, you're writing about politics, you're writing about the weather, you're writing about the events of the world, and sports is, is one of those things. You know, the, the news generates a lot of interest across a lot of categories, and yes, they, they sell advertising, they sell subscriptions, et cetera. You know, sports betting, in our opinion, is a direct derivative product of sports leagues. You know, sports leagues put up competitions, you offer bets on those competitions, and we should share in those economics. You know, I think it's it's a lot more analogous, in, in my view, to broadcasting an NBA game, right? So people watch an NBA game on ESPN, and so ESPN sells ads and generates affiliate content for that. ESPN pays us for the, the right to, to do that. And, and you know, I, I'm sure your next point and the thing we, we've heard for many years is, well, sports betting generates a, a lot of interest in your games and it's good marketing for the league. So isn't, and, and I say agreed, and, and we've never, we've never disagreed with that, but you could say the same for our games being on television is good, you know, reach for, for our games or somebody walking around with an NBA t-shirt is, is good marketing for the league. Cause you know, you get to see the, 
at some point, the league has to make money in order to exist. And so if we gave everyone a pass and said, okay, you can use our contest to generate revenue and you don't have to pay us, eventually we wouldn't have a business. We wouldn't be able to fund these competitions. We wouldn't be able to pay the players. So our, again, our, our fundamental view is that if companies are going to take our product, generate revenue, that's how the league makes money is by you, by monetizing the competitions that we put on. And we can't give everyone a pass at participating in those economics just because, you know, it will generate interest in the league if they do. Got it. Cool. So like movie, let's take this another step further. So you said um, earlier in the podcast that you guys took an equity position in FanDuel. Do you still have that? No, um, we, we had an equity position in FanDuel when they were a daily fantasy company. Um, and when they pivoted into sports betting, we no longer thought it was appropriate for us to have a stake at at that time. And so when they were acquired by flutter or at that point, petty power bet fair and now flutter, we were redeemed in that transaction. So we, we have not been uh, equity holders in FanDuel since 2018. Got it. So, uh, do you, uh, if you can share, do you have equity positions in other operators or is your principal no. monetization through selling data access and people betting more or pay attention more to the NBA? So, so your main yeah, monetization look, mechanism is this kind of rev share kind of path. Do you, do you have other, I guess there's sponsorships as well. Is that more on a team yeah, basis that's right. so or e- a league basis? They're, they're both exist. So teams are able to sell sponsorship inventory in, in markets where sports betting is legal to sports betting operators there. So, you know, they have physical signage in the arenas and on the Jumbotron and, you know, activations they do locally. So if you, you know, watch an NBA telecast, you might see the uh, DraftKings and at BetMGM on the Knicks court. You might see... FanDuel on the Suns court, tons of operators have have related to their team. So those are local team sponsorship deals. And then at the league level, we have, you know, smaller deals that are more like licensing deals where we license our data and our IP to operators. And like you say, they pay a variable percentage. And well, a lot of our deals are constructed in different ways. But, um, you know, there is sort of a basic licensing deal where we license our data, our IP. And then some of our deals are much larger that include sponsorship components. So our we have co-official partners in FanDuel and DraftKings, and each of them have a number of different elements to our deal. So you may see commercials that FanDuel has that have NBA highlights in them. Um, so that's a, a right that FanDuel has as one of our official partners. Uh, DraftKings is the sponsor of NBA BetStream. So on League Pass and on NBA TV, we have a betting-focused telecast. Uh, DraftKings provides DraftKings talent to participate in the commentary. There's DraftKings odds and lines and integration. So you know that, that, that's an element of our partnership with them. You know, we also have larger sponsorship relationships with MGM, PointsBet, Caesars, Hard Rock. So some of our deals are larger that include more traditional sponsorship assets as a part of it. But, you know, going back to what I said earlier in terms of how we needed to treat this category differently, we didn't think it was right to just do an exclusive category with one operator and say, they get all the NBA IP, they get all the NBA assets, and that's it. They write us a big check and we call it a day. We felt that we should have a relationship with all the betting operators. So we did a non-exclusive framework where we will license our data, we will license NBA marks and logos to any operator. Um, And our view on that is that, 
again, we think that there are a number of our fans that are choosing sports betting as a mechanism to engage with our games, and we want them to have an authentic experience. We want them to be using official data. We want them to be using NBA IP. We don't think our fans should go to their chosen sports betting app and have to see, you know, SAS versus NYK pro basketball. You know, they want an authentic experience, just like, you know, we don't know of a lot of people that play you know, pro basketball 2022 video game. Everybody wants to play NBA 2K23. And, um, you know, you don't go to Madison Square Garden and see just people in blue and orange t-shirts. They want an actual Knicks jersey or a Knicks t-shirt or a Knicks sweater. So when our fans engage with our product, they want an, ex- an authentic experience. And we wanted to be able to offer that to them regardless of the legal sports operator that they chose. And that is sort of the last point, which is, we think that's actually a clear differentiator with the offshore market. And in the early days, we have to do everything we can to differentiate the legal licensed operators from the illegal offshore market. So by allowing our teams and our, the league to take advertising only from legal operators, by licensing our IP to their platforms, we can start to differentiate between the legal and offshore. And our goal is that every legal operator is using NBIP has an authentic product, and that so when an, when somebody goes to you know my bookie or Bovada and doesn't see that they say oh I know this is bootleg because I don't see the authentic experience and that's one of the goals that we're what we're trying to achieve with uh, with the license our non exclusive framework. But going back to this uh, 50, 50 page strategy that you have, I mean it sounds like. I mean, have things besides the fact that there's a, a state legislative framework versus a federal legislative framework, it sounds largely that it's gone your way the way you kind of wanted it to evolve. Is, would you say that's accurate or are there things you're still disappointed about? Um, it, it's no secret to the industry that we attempted to put into the legislation that a fee should be paid to the operators. Uh, it certainly would have been our preference that that be codified into law. Again, for all the reasons I said earlier, we think it's appropriate that we share in the economics. Uh, it didn't unfold that way. The state legislatures ultimately did not agree. And so we've replicated it with commercial deals. And so I think we do feel pretty good about where we landed. I think we have a really good relationship with the industry now. We have partnerships with virtually every major operator. Um and so I think we are largely happy with with how it's all unfolded in the end. It was a circuitous route to get there. You know, certainly there are some things that have happened in the marketplace that I think we all would have prefer- hoped to see more product innovation at this point. I think we would all hope that certain states would be legal at this point. And, you know, there are some places where they're still focused only on retail betting versus mobile betting. We think that's short-sighted. So I think there are things broadly about the rollout that you know we wish could have gone better, but I think for the most part we're we're pretty satisfied with how this has unfolded, and we feel good about our relationship with the industry at this point. Do you have a way to measure the increased attention with the increased betting activity? Do you have a way to do attribution around that, or is that too hard? It's really difficult, um, and we, we've tried really hard. And, and listen again, we we've never disputed it. We we yeah. believe that people who bet on sports, they watch more games, they watch for longer periods of time. You know, Nielsen has done a lot of research on this topic. Our partners have done top research and the research certainly suggests it, but it's really difficult to 
look at our ratings data and say, okay, there was a 10% increase and that came from sports betting. You know, there, there are so many moving parts, you know, certain teams are better uh, than, than they were in a previous year. You know, another thing that makes it really difficult to track is that Nielsen ratings are generally done uh, by DMA, by sort of market, and some markets uh, span multiple states. So for example, the Philadelphia market is New Jersey and Pennsylvania. The New York City market is Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, and you know, the northwestern, northeastern corner of Pennsylvania. And all of those states legalized in different ways at different times. So how do you look at an increase in ratings in New York City and say, well, it's because of sports betting in this state when they all have different versions of sports betting? So we've been trying to find a way to track it, um, but it's really, really difficult to prove and and you can potentially look at correlation, but it's also really difficult to to show causation. So you could look at it even if you found a, a demographic where it's this city versus this city, and the only thing that changed year over year was that sports betting was legal. You still couldn't prove that's why. You could say, well, there's an interesting correlation there, and you might suggest that that was the reason. But fans aren't saying I am watching this game because I bet on it, and I would not have watched this game otherwise. So it is difficult to show the direct causation. I guess I guess the attribution is is totally tricky, and I'm sure you've looked at this, but I guess you could compare like the NYC market to the LA market because the tri-state is legal-ish, and you know LA's not. But I, I'm I'm sure it's very you, tricky. You, listen, you definitely could, but again, if the Knicks were better year over year and the Lakers right. were worse year over year, then it may that may be driving the difference in ratings rather than sports betting. So there's just there's a lot of variables. It's hard to isolate one. So I'm I'm from the tech industry, so I I have maybe it's this is kind of a dumb question, but from from my perspective, uh, between TikTok, Netflix, and all this kind of stuff, people are watching less and less linear television. Everybody's cutting the cord and et cetera. And I think one of the few bright spots is live sports because it's one of those things that you have to watch live. It's one of the you know I, when I was a kid, I remember watching uh, Step by Step and Full House on Friday night and Thursday night. It was kind of like. We knew where we were going to be at 7 p.m. every Thursday night. I think one of the main ways that uh, television is going to make money is, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but do you, like, to me, sports betting has to be a big part of that puzzle because we don't know to the extent, but we certainly can agree, everybody can agree that betting increases engagement. So, like, do you, like, do you want to increase like, how do you, how do you see, like, the next 5, 10 years of the media landscape vis-a-vis uh, uh, live TV kind of uh, becoming falling out of favor and perhaps sports betting um, increases the engagement of your product? I think it's a great point. And, and here's, here's how we see it. We're starting to see a shift from linear consumption of media to digital consumption of media. Don't get me wrong. There's still a lot of people that are watching linear television so that that's still the bigger number, but we're starting to see that shift. And we imagine that over time, people will be watching via digital mechanisms rather than through traditional linear cable television. And it unlocks a lot of opportunity because right now you think about the broadcast and, and it's kind of been the same way for you know 40 or 50 years. It's a one to many experience. Everybody gets the exact same broadcast when you watch it on TV um, because you don't have the ability to customize based on your viewer when you're watching on cable TV. And that of course is such a departure from every other digital platform. You know, you mentioned TikTok. When, when you go to TikTok, you get a customized experience based on your preferences. And when I go to Amazon, I get a 
here's what you last searched for, or based on what you bought, you might like this. And when I go to Netflix, the shows that I've watched are at the top, or 99% chance we think you'll like this show based on what you've watched. When you watch a live sports telecast, everybody's getting the same thing, regardless of how they're consuming the game. And the shift from linear to digital allows us to change that because on a digital platform, you can customize the experience based on what you know about the fan. And so what I think we're going to start to see, and we've already started to do a lot of this through what we call alternate telecasts. So if you subscribe to NBA League Pass, which is our um, what we call our out-of-market package, um, and you're on our digital platform, you can watch different feeds of the game. There's the home feed, there's the away feed, there's what we call mobile view, which is if you're watching on a mobile device, it's a camera angle that is optimized for mobile viewing. Um, we have an influencer telecast, which if you don't like the traditional color commentator and you know play-by-play -play person, you know, you're, you're hearing from people who have a little bit more of a bring a personality and a little bit more commentary to it than the way that it's always brought broadcast. Um, and we do have for select games NBA BetStream, which is a betting focused telecast that has people commenting on the game specifically from a betting pr perspective, live odds integrated into the telecast, digital overlays with all of that. And the key part of that is that the user is selecting the experience that they want. They're saying, I want the home feed, the away feed, the mobile view, or the betting feed. Because we don't necessarily think we should put a whole bunch of betting into the traditional telecast, right? I mean, a lot of people are in states where betting isn't legal. Maybe they're under the age of 21. Maybe they just don't like sports betting. And so putting a whole bunch of odds and props and things like that into the traditional telecast isn't really the right way to serve the fan. But what, the, what is the right way to serve the fan is to give them an experience that they either want or that we serve to them based on what we know about them through the data that we have on our fans. And the shift from linear to digital will allow us to do that. You know, you, you will be able to provide your, you know, if you're watching the game and you have a SmartKits account, you know, our goal is you can authenticate with your SmartKits account and there are your bets tracking in real time. I mean, maybe there's even a world where at some point down the road, you can place bets. I mean, for technical and regulatory reasons, that's complicated, but the goal is, that you get an experience that's tailored to you. That if you're a fan and you're watching the game and you have bet on the game, there are elements of the broadcast experience that are tailored to you and what you're interested in. And that is, I think, the main benefit that we'll see from a shift from linear to digital. And I absolutely agree that sports bettors will benefit from that because they can receive an experience that's customized to them. Maybe not even just here are the odds because we know you like bet, but here are how your bets are tracking, or here's a bet you may like based on the fact that, you know, we know you're a huge fan of Giannis and his over under just moved down to 20.5. Would you like to place a bet on this? And that, that is what the shift to digital will unlock in our view. Got it. And how does the league do like, this is a switching more to a, a logistical question. Injury reports are really key towards the, the line and all that kind of stuff. Is the league looking at the way it handles injury reports vis-a-vis -vis sports betting because it moves the price so much or does the league take a hands-off view on that? We're not going to change our rules for sports betting per se, but we certainly believe as a league in increased transparency and we always have. And so we, we do try to be as transparent as we can. So we did move up our starting lineup procedure. It, it used to be that it had to be declared five minutes before the game. We did move that up to 30 minutes. 
and it certainly wasn't for sports betting, but we were hearing from our fans that, you know, that was too tight and they wanted that increased transparency. And so, you know, it, we did move that up to allow for more time. But of course, you know, sometimes things happen, right? I mean, players playing in warmups and they tweak something or, you know, they decide, you know, it, things do happen. And so there are rare instances where a guy gets subbed out and like, listen, we have a, we have a free substitution game. So even if you declare a starting lineup or declare an active, like you can freely sub people in and out of the game as you, as you fit unlike baseball, you know, where if you come out of the game and you're out. Um, so it makes it a little harder to say, this is the line it has to happen and nothing can ever change because again, injuries happen. And, um, you know, obviously there was a, this happened earlier in the year with Draymond Green where he was intending to play the game. And then he went through warmups, tweaked his hamstring. And he actually missed several months after that. That was a legitimate, a legitimate in- injury, but it just so happened in a high profile game and it caused some wonky things in the betting world. Unfortunately, those things are going to happen. They're going to be rare, but they happen. But we we do try to be as transparent as we possibly can with our injury reporting and our startup lining reporting. Again, not just for sports betting, so that fans know who's playing in the game. Uh, I think most leagues have a policy that like active soccer players can't bet on soccer. What is the NBA's policy about NBA employees, players, or staff betting on NBA? It's a very strict policy. No player, coach, trainer, team employee, league employee, every single person is prohibited from betting on any NBA competition, any WNBA competition, G League, 2K League, everything is fully prohibited. No NBA league or team employee can bet on any NBA related competition. Got it. And does that include retired players or no? Some retired players are affiliated with the league or a team. And so if they are affiliated with the league or the team, they're subject to the same policy as every league and team employee. But if you have a former player who has nothing to do with the NBA anymore, they're, they're no longer under our policy. Awesome. Is there any upcoming product or, or thing that you're looking forward to or, or something that you want to share? I think over the next several years, you're going to see our media partners, you know, get more and more creative in how they integrate sports betting into their broadcast experience. I think you'll see the league office do the same. And I really think it's that shift to digital that allows us to customize that experience because Our view is that sports betting should be an opt-in experience for our fans. We shouldn't be pushing it on our fans, but certainly to the extent they raise their hands and they're interested in it, we want it to be fully available. And the better the technology gets from digital platforms, the more we know about the consumer, the more we and our partners can serve them a tailored experience for them. And we're excited about what that will unlock in terms of bringing sports and betting together more. Awesome. Last question. What do you want to be when you grow up? Oof. I, I feel like I'm I'm largely there. You know, I think if you told, you know, 10-year-old Scott where he would be at the age of 36, he'd be he'd be pretty happy. So I, I won't get too greedy from you're here. all grown up, is what you're saying. <laughs> Fantastic. I you know, I, I have a job, I, I have a child, so I I'm pretty grown up. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your views on the NBA. And it's exciting the the way you guys have leaned into this industry and the transparency and the the enthusiasm you bring for it. And uh, thanks for sharing that with our audience. Great to be here. Good to talk to you, Jason. Thanks, Scott.